So John 18, verses 1 to 12, when he, Jesus, had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples, and they crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing that all was going to, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, "Who is it that you want?" And they said, "Jesus of Nazareth." "I am he," Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, "I am he," they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, "Who is it you want?" And they said, "Jesus of Nazareth." I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup? The Father has given me. And then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. This is the word of the Lord today. And may it, as always, show us to ourselves that we would once more understand where we stand, who we stand with, and the grace and goodness of a God who will never deny us. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you. So uh, you all have heard me uh, talk about the five years I spent in ministry before I came to First Pres. I spent eight years in Chattanooga, and then I spent uh, five years in Fort Myers, the first two of which were just this side of hell, and uh, the last three were, uh, were really good. Uh, but when I got there, you know, I, I'll just be honest, it wasn't great. Um, the people there didn't really seem to like me much. Um, I was young. I was a kind of a bull in a china shop kind of pastor. I made a lot of mistakes. Um, but I was also preaching a gospel that they probably were not familiar with. It was the idea of that we are broken, that we need Jesus. We need to be in relationship with God. And so that was sort of new to them, and they weren't sure that they liked that. And a lot of people felt like I was the, I was the wrong guy to lead that church. And, but I was, I was working with the elders. We had a, a session of about 32 elders, and I was talking to them on a regular basis. And the clerk of the session um, was, was someone who I, I, I liked her. Uh, we weren't seeing eye to eye on everything, but we were working together, I thought. We were working together on, on the for the good, good of the church, for, in the best interests of the church. So I'd been there about 12 months and we were coming up to Pledge Sunday, which if you have been in churches for very long, you know that kind of in, in the not too recent past, on a Sunday in November, everybody would make a pledge to, as to what they were gonna give in the coming uh, calendar year. And then the church would build its budget based on uh, what the pledges were, right? So we were coming up to our Pledge Sunday. And three weeks before the Pledge Sunday, our clerk of session, kind of the, the leader of the elders. I mean, it's a very important role. She got a hold of the church database and sent a letter to the whole congregation 
and said, based on what I see happening in the church, I think the best thing that we could do is for all of us to stop giving financially. And if we stop giving any money, the church will run low on funds and will then have to let go of David Swanson. And so that, this way we can avoid any presbytery process and we can get a new leader. So I've had some low days in ministry. Yeah. <laughs> well, That's good. You know, I, I, hadn't, I hadn't had a day quite that low. Because I thought, wait a second, we're, we're on the same team. Like I, I thought we were together. Even I, We weren't getting along great, but I, I thought we were at least moving in the same direction. Well, imagine the next two Sundays. And I know everybody who's coming to church has gotten that letter. And so everybody I look at, I'm like, are you standing with me? Are you with them? What, what side are you on? And then I'd get in the pulpit. Imagine how it was to preach those two weeks. And all I could do was cling to Jesus, to stand as best I knew with Jesus. Now, the story ends really well because that pledge Sunday, that church pledged $300,000 more than they'd ever pledged in their history. And, um, and all of a sudden the people realized, oh, we're gonna stand with Swanson. And so in the next year, we had about 400 people leave. We had about 1,000 people who came. And the church reinvented itself. And the next three years, really, that was the Sunday where I saw the Spirit of God just turn the whole thing around. But it, it really does raise the question, it sure did for me that day. Where, where do we all stand? Who do we stand with? I mean, not just related to the church or just in, in your own life. And think about how much this is before us just in our culture these days. I mean, all week, if you've been paying any attention to the local news, you've seen Disney has gotten embroiled in where they stand on a particular bill before the state legislature. And one day it's this, it's that, and, and kind of the accusation is they're kind of playing it from both sides. They're trying to stand on, on both sides. You look at the Ukraine, and you look at all the people that are supporting the Ukraine, and then you get President Zelensky saying, I know you support me, but I need you to support me more. I know you stand with me, but how much do you stand with me? Right, and then, my goodness, the last two years in the pandemic, I mean, every day I had somebody asking me, where do you stand on masks? Where do you stand on vaccines? Where do you stand on the Black Lives Matter movement? Where do you stand on the election? Where do you stand on this? Where do you stand on that? You should have said this, you should have said that. It was relentless. And that doesn't even get into the more challenging question of all of that. I mean, where do we stand on Florida versus Florida State? I mean, that's really the center question. But here's, here's the thing. I think in our hearts, truth be told, I think most of us would rather not have to take a stand. We, we just want people to like us. We don't want to get in the middle of a bunch of trouble. You know, there's emotional cost to that, and there's, there's time, and I, I just don't want to get involved. So there are moments when we go, well, I'll just... I'll, you know, when I'm with these people, I'll kind of be that. And when I'm with these people, I'll kind of be more like that. And so we wind up trying to play both sides. And, and in playing both sides, we wind up standing for nothing. 
And that's really where we are in our text this morning. In John 18, Jesus has been in ministry three years. He's now in the last week of his life. He's in Jerusalem. He's on his way to the cross. He's taken a towel, wrapped it around his waist. He's washed the feet of the disciples. He has shared a meal with them during which Judas gets up and leaves. But then after that meal, it says that Jesus led them as he's trying to comfort them. The disciples will bewildered. They're confused. Jesus says he's leaving. He's going to be killed. What does that mean? I don't understand. So he's comforting, and they go across the Kidron Valley to this olive grove because Jesus apparently had often spent time with the disciples there, and it says that Judas knew where it was. So when they show up, here comes Judas with a detachment of soldiers, which we know, we tend to think in our minds, well, that was 10 or 12 soldiers. No, it wasn't. A, a detachment in Greek, the word is stira, and a stira of soldiers was 250 to 300 soldiers. So people, there's a massive group of people. And what did it also say? They're all armed. They're all armed. They've got torches and lanterns. And then we're also told they're the chief priests and some of their servants, they're Pharisees. And so Peter kind of wigs out and he cuts off the ear of a servant of one of the priests, but Jesus handles that situation, kind of goes, there you go, no sweat, no harm, no foul. So look at the scene. You got 300 armed soldiers. You got Judas. You've got the chief priests, religious leaders, Pharisees, Jesus, and the 12 disciples. And it just screams. As you look at this olive grove, the scene is screaming the question, where are you going to stand? Where are you going to stand? Who are you going to stand with? And we know real clearly where one guy stands because in verse five, it says, and Judas was standing with them. So clearly Judas was on the side of the soldiers and imagine even though Jesus knew it, he knew that was gonna happen, but you have to believe that it still just gutted him to see someone that he'd been with all that time had now betrayed him. Because the reality is, this wasn't some snap decision for Judas, was it? Judas had been leading a double life for weeks, maybe even months, where he'd been with Jesus and he'd been listening to lessons and he'd seen the miracles. He'd shared fellowship with the disciples. They were moving in a particular direction, but at the same time, he was leading another life. He was meeting with the religious leaders. He was talking about when to betray Jesus. He was trying to figure out how much he was gonna get paid. And he was doing both those things at the same time. And people, we love it, don't we? We love to say, and even John says it, the traitor Judas was standing with them. But even though we love to point the finger at Judas, we know that we're all in that boat aren't we? Because that's the church. People, the reality is that we're all leading a double life. As I prayed in my prayer, I'm doing the best I can in my heart of heart. I want to follow Christ. I want to stand with Jesus. I do. But there's this sinful side of me that wants to stand for myself. I want to take matters into my own hands. I want to move and act according to my own wisdom and what I think. 
And I have to come to terms with the fact that I lead a double life. I am a duplicitous man. I am. How do I know this? The text. Look at the text. How do I also know it's true of you? How do I also know it's true of the church? The text. Look at what Peter does. Peter, in all his haste, he grabs the sword and he slices off the ear of Malchus, a servant. Now, you got to question Peter's wisdom here, right? What does he actually think the end game's going to be? There are 300 armed men over here. Does he think he's just going to start a little fight and they're all going to just stand down? No, but Jesus handles it. And he, well, let me get that for you. There you go. I mean, doesn't that freak out a little bit? Jesus just sticks the ear back on and then it's like nothing happened. Everybody just goes right on with it, right? But, but here's what Jesus actually says. He heals the guy's ear and then he says to Peter, shall I not drink the cup? Shall I not drink this cup? In other words, Peter, if this was the only situation, if it was just the fact that Judas betrayed us all and brought all these soldiers, Sure, Jesus and Peter could have gone all Avengers and handled that situation, I have no doubt. But instead, he says, shall I not drink this cup? He says, Peter, the situation's bigger than just this. Cutting off the ear of one guy's not gonna help. Putting down this rebellion's not gonna help because I have to deal with what is happening in the entire world. I have to deal with the sin of the world and Alistair Begg writes, as Judas now stands with those who fight against Jesus, we realize the chilling reality of how close many of us come to following Jesus while still being dreadful hypocrites, taking our position and standing with them. We are. There are moments clearly when I move from where I want to follow Jesus and I go, I'm I'm gonna stand over here with them for a while. So where are we standing today? Well, I just want you to see a couple of places where we get tempted to stand apart from Jesus. And they're what happens to Judas. And I'm gonna draw on the board because the last time I did it, y'all liked that. So I'm gonna do it again. So it says that Judas went and, and he had been negotiating with and he's now standing with who? The religious leaders. And there's a huge difference between being religious. Religion is what? Religion is often rules. That's how we view it. There's a set of rules and regulations that I need to follow and, and admin my life to, and I'm going to follow those as best I can. But relationship with God is about life and truth. If I can figure out what's true, then the truth is going to give me freedom. Truth is going to give me the life that I want. And so what we see when you and I start to get religious, when we stop having a relationship with God, but it's just about rules and regulations and doing what is right or wrong, then as soon as it gets tough, as the religious leaders did in this situation, as soon as there's a cost to my religion, then what am I going to do? I'm going to change the rules in order to benefit me. I'll change it in some way, or as many times we see the Pharisees doing, they subtracted themselves from the situation. So what we see in our culture today is a lot of the religious are trying to adhere and amend the rules to make their lives more comfortable. And so what the religious say today is, oh, there's this theology, and we talked about it two weeks ago, I wanna review it with you again. But there's a theology that says, God is just love. 
God is all loving. And so everybody's included, right? There's this law of inclusivity, a new theology of God's inclusivity, which he is, as we just sang, come as you are. So God is welcoming of all of us. But what the current religious approach to it says, well, God is loving. And that just means nobody's shut out. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you do even. Just everybody's welcome, everybody come on in. But what do we really know? We know that's not true. Because even those who say God is love and it's inclusive of everyone, actually it's not, is it? That even those who would say that is not inclusive of racists. There is a line where they're gonna say, oh no, 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 you actually can't come in. You're actually not part of this. If you're racist, if you're bigoted, if you're a violent offender, in other words, what they're saying is, you know, actually there are things that are wrong. There is a right and a wrong, and there are consequences to what is wrong. That's known as justice. And see what we discover if we allow for this religious idea that says God is just loving and he's all inclusive, everything crumbles. That leads to a very bad place because in that theology, what you do doesn't matter. And all of a sudden you realize if what you do doesn't matter, then nothing matters. If there's no such thing as right and wrong, then all the injustices of the world never get answered. And it doesn't matter what you do or what I do. And everything that you believe to be true about life crumbles. And so friends, when it comes to how we function in this life, we as Christian people need to be prepared to defend the gospel because our relationship with God is more than about rules. It's about life. It's about truth. This is where you're gonna actually find the life that you're looking for. And so how do we engage the culture? When it comes to these things that are being attacked, in particular marriage, family, gender, those important dynamics, well, first of all, we do that in love. We don't side. We're not gonna stand with the religious and change things. We're gonna recognize, all right, what's, what's true? The God of love who includes everybody doesn't work. So how do I figure out what's true? Well, let me just give you something that I think is a loving way, because here's the thing. Running up and telling people, you know, you're a horrible person and you're wrong, that's not going to get you anywhere, right? That, that's not going to convert anybody. So first of all, what we have to believe, when, when we're trying to stand for Christ in the culture against just basic religiosity, we have to see the image of God in everybody. I don't care if you're a religious person. I don't care if you're a Hindu. I don't care who you are, color your skin, what you believe you are, as Brett alluded to, everyone's been created by God. And therefore, we all bear the image of God. And as such, even if I disagree with your behavior or your position, I still treat you with love and with dignity and respect. And in the context of just treating you as a human being, I'm gonna learn to ask you good questions. And here's, some, here's what you can do. Now, we've talked about the, the biblical, the four-chapter gospel, right? The biblical narrative is, I hope you can tell me, what are the creation? Yeah, I heard a child say redemption and restoration. I, I, don't, know, I don't know which child you are, but you get gold stars. So, and good job, mom and dad. So when you, when you go have a cup of coffee with somebody, What's something that you can ask them that begins with the four chapter gospel? Well, related to creation, the question is, where do we come from? 
So you don't start with, you know, I really disagree with your position on X. You say, you know what, it's just as you're, as you're looking at life, I, I don't know, where do you think this all got started? You an evolution guy? You a Big Bang Theory? Like, where, where did it come from? That's a creation question. Then, then you, the question related to the fall is, what went wrong? And you can ask them, you know, do, do you think the world's perfect? Like right now, do you think this is just, man, this is awesome. We're just, everything's going so well. And, and there are some books that you will read that will tell you how all the developments and all the things we've done and signed, da, 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 you know, true. But do you generally think that the trajectory of the world is moving in the right direction? So you go, what? You know, there's all this injustice and, and all the things we see to say, well, what went wrong? And then you also might throw in there, when did it go wrong? Right? And again, you're just having a cup of coffee. You're just asking questions. You're not making any statements. Then the redemption question is how do we fix it? So if, if they think, well, here, here's what went wrong, then, then you go, all right, well, wow, that's a big problem. What, what's the fix? How do we, how do we get to the, a resolution? What can we do to make it better? Right? You haven't even gotten into any spiritual biblical questions yet. And then the restoration question is, where are we headed? All right, so you're going to say, all right, well, if this is what we need to do to fix it, is the fix going to change the trajectory? Like ultimately, what's going to happen in the world? So you're not attacking anybody. You're not proselytizing and shaking your finger. You're just loving somebody well, which obviously requires our time and our attention. Martin Luther said in his book, The Nature of Doctrine, if I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition, every position or portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not professing Christ. However boldly I may be professing Christ, where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. To be steady on all battle fronts besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. So what Luther is saying is we can talk all day about the importance of generosity and how we need to care for the poor and we need to be about this thing and that thing and we can talk about all kinds of theology. But if we flinch, at the exact point where the culture right now is attacking us, then we've utterly failed to stand on the side of truth because we actually would have the audacity to believe that it leads unto life. And so friends, that's why our discipleship matters. That's why our spiritual formation hour matters. That's why on the church survey, you told us, I don't feel comfortable living this life in 21st century America with everything that's going on. I don't feel like I really have any answers. Well, that's what we're trying to do in discipleship is to equip you to go live missionally in your world so you can just start here. I go, at least now I have a few handles to engage somebody in a conversation after which I can then say, you know, I actually think the gospel story has answers to these questions. And that's why I believe it. And maybe the fact that you heard them first will open up doors 
for gospel sharing. And we're going to get into that much more uh, this next fall when we talk about that specifically. So Judas, he was tempted to stand on the side of the religious because it was just about rules. I can amend those. I can duck out and not be seen. But then the second thing was that Judas was tempted to stand on the side of himself. He was tempted to stand on the side that benefited him. And at the end of the day, when we know God says, I've called you into faith so that you might love me and love others. That's what God calls us to do. Ultimately, our sinful nature loves who? My sinful nature loves me. I love me some me, right? I'm all about me and I am tempted to stand on the side of me. And that's what Judas did. He was tempted to stand on the side of power. He was tempted to stand on the side of of position. He was tempted to stand on the side of wealth. He was standing, and think about this, he was standing on the side of all those things that ultimately he did not believe to be true about Jesus. So we all do this. We feel a sense of deep insecurity. And so because we feel insecure, we feel like we have to behave in these particular ways. I'm gonna stand on the the side of the world so I can have power and position and I can change my appearance and I can have this and that because ultimately I don't believe that Jesus is sufficient for me. That's the ultimate temptation, right? Is I, I, I don't believe in what Jesus has revealed to me about being his beloved, cherished one. Or we yearn for intimacy, don't we? We yearn to be fully known, to have deep connection with another person. But somehow we think our relationship with God and Christ is insufficient. And so we go looking for intimacy and connection in counterfeit ways because we just don't believe that my relationship with God could ever suffice to meet those needs in my life. We do it just like Judas did, because there are certain things about the gospel, about Jesus that we just don't believe are true. And people, I cannot tell you what a sobering message this has been to prepare because I've had to spend the last two weeks in the knowledge that I am a duplicitous man. And every day God's going ding, 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 see, ding, ding, see. He's just showing me to myself. And if that's where you find you are today too, welcome. There's plenty of room in here for all of us. But where do I find hope? We find hope back in the text, don't we? We find hope in the text when Jesus says, they've all gathered. And what does he say? He says, who are you looking for? And they go, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he answers by saying, I am he, ego a me in Greek. And when he says, I am he, what happens? Everybody draws back and falls down. Did you see that? Did you just skip over that part? Jesus says, I am, and everybody falls down. Why? Because what Jesus said goes all the back to, way back to Exodus 3, when Moses says to God, you're sending me to Pharaoh. And he goes, hey, what's your name? Who do I tell Pharaoh is sending me to him? And God says, tell them I am. I am when Jesus answers the question of the soldiers, who are you looking for, Jesus? And Jesus says, I am. They fell down because what Jesus was saying is I'm God. I'm the creator of the universe and I'm the creator of all of you. And I have come down, incarnated myself in order to deal with and address the problems of the very people that I created. And then hear all, all the betrayers. And what does Jesus say? 
He says, I'm the one you want. Don't take them. Take me. What does that stir in you? When he that you would deny will not deny you. When the one from whom you flee will never flee from you. When he says, I know they betrayed me and they denied me, but he said, don't take them. He's God. He could have said, kill them. It's what they deserve. But for all of us, all of the duplicitous people that we are, God comes in human flesh and he says, don't take them, take me. Take me. It ought to make us fall to our knees in humble thanksgiving that we who would betray will never be betrayed because of the cross of Jesus Christ. But did you notice last thing? He says, I am. Everybody falls down, but what's the one thing that doesn't happen that should have? When when he puts the ear back on the servant, when he says, I am, and everybody falls down, Do we read that anybody gets up and says, wow, I'm taking off my sword. I'm taking off my shield. Jesus, I'm going to follow you now. Nobody does that. All they say is, I know who you are, but none of them say, and I'm going to stand with you. None of them say, I'll follow you. And Alistair Begg writes these words. We in the Christian church are in the most dangerous of all positions to hear over and over again the living word and yet to be hardened and unaffected by its truth, to fail to respond and unlike the soldiers to rise from our knees and say, yes, you're the Christ and I will stand with you. People, he says, we're in danger of coming into a church week after week after week after week, and we hear, this is God. Jesus is the incarnate son of God. I am, he says, and yet we get up and we walk out and we're unaffected by the truth and we live just the same way and we're in danger of hearing it, but never responding and never actually moving a muscle to stand with Christ. My prayer today is that God would humble us And recognize, even as Peter said, Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we too would follow in his steps. People, sometimes the Christian life is hard. And Lent reminds us of that. There is a cost to our discipleship. As Bonhoeffer wrote, where are we today? Who do we stand with? If you're like me, you stand in two places. But the good news is that Jesus has and will always stand with and for you in the hope of his cross 
in his resurrection. Live in the truth and the hope of that grace that you might more and more stand with Christ wherever you may find yourself in this world in which we live. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for a stirring moment in the last week of Jesus's life, a moment when we are quick to judge Judas and make a determination about how terrible and awful Judas is when the reality is that we are right there with him. But Father, thank you that in all of our duplicitous nature, that you said you'd never break your promise, even if it cost you your life. And that's exactly what happened. Lord, thank you that today, though I have denied you, you will never deny me. Though we have denied you, you will never deny us. Give us courage, O God, for the living of this day that we might stand with you. Amen.